Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you, worship team, for leading us. Such a pleasure to be with you in the great state of New Hampshire. I have a couple wonderful memories in your state. I worked for a summer at a camp on Lake Winnipesaukee many, many years ago. I had a great summer there. I've climbed uh, Mount Washington, I think, three or four different times. How many of you have done that? Yeah, you're all crazy like me, but uh, wonderful memories in your state, and glad to be here with you this morning and add, hopefully, uh, another wonder. It already has been a wonderful experience to be with you today. Great to be at this church, Jeff. Thank you for the, the kind invitation, your kind words, and I already sense the, the presence of God in this place, and I'm so privileged to be here with you, uh, especially when you're celebrating graduates. So I assured Jeff that I would not make a commercial. This would not be a commercial of Eastern Nazarene College this morning. But if any of you graduates have not yet finalized your plans for the fall, uh, please see me at the back table and I'll be happy to have that conversation with you. This is a, uh, a momentous morning in uh, my pastoral ministry, actually, as well. I am now a college president and have been an educator for about uh, 10 years or so, but I'm still a pastor and think of myself primarily as a pastor. I think I was searching, scouring my memory banks uh, during the service. I think this is the first time I've ever preached in a Nazarene church uh, this morning. I've preached, I think, about 2,000 sermons. Well, don't clap until you've heard this thing, but <laughs> I've preached, I think, about 2,000 sermons in Wesleyan churches and other kinds of denominations, but I don't think I've ever before preached in a Nazarene. So, here we go. First one. Um, this is also my first sermon since I have been, my uh, credentials have been recognized, my ordination has been recognized by the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, I remain ordained in the Wesleyan Church, my home denomination, but on Friday, or Friday evening, my credentials were recognized by the New England Assembly. So I'm expecting some noticeable improvement in myself this morning, <laughs> given the fact that I'm now approved by the Nazarenes as well. I shared at District Assembly on Friday that recently I was in a conversation with two of my friends, one a Nazarene and one a Wesleyan, about this transition I'm in the process of making from the Wesleyan Church uh, to the Nazarene Church. And there was, as you can imagine, lots of good-natured teasing back and forth about getting sanctified or backsliding, betraying, you know, depending on which friend was doing the talking at the point, at that given point. At one moment in the conversation, the, my Wesleyan friend said to my Nazarene friend, he said, Jack says he feels called to this Nazarene gig he said, I didn't think the call of God could come from the Church of the Nazarene. And without missing a beat, the Nazarene friend said to the Wesleyan friend, and we didn't think you Wesleyans could hear the call of God either. So we'll score one for the Nazarenes in that conversation. I think the net effect of all of that and many other conversations I've been in is that we're all a little bit surprised that I am in this role uh, today uh, and for the last couple months. No one more surprised than me, uh, candidly. This is not a transition that I was planning on or even could have imagined just a few short months ago. The plan for the rest of my ministry career was very clear. It was all mapped out. And becoming the president of ENC was not it, um, at least as far as I understood the plan. And I'm finding that that's often the way life works. That there are lots of surprises, lots of twists and turns, lots of detours along the way. A few summers ago, I attended the 30th reunion of my high school graduating class. So yes, graduating seniors, I am ancient. But believe me, you'll be at your 30-year reunion before you know it. <laughs> 
So that was one of the more fascinating experiences of my whole life. I mean, imagine a bunch of people, and some of you have been to your high school reunions, and you know this. So in my case, imagine a bunch of people who grew up together in the 1970s, uh, wearing bell-bottoms, all of them now in some form of midlife crisis, you know, at the reunion, um, many of them who used to date each other, uh, disco music playing, at an open bar, and things get real interesting real fast. But as I was sipping my Diet Coke, just to be clear, sipping my Diet Coke, um, and interacting with these friends of mine, these old friends that I hadn't seen in 30 years, it struck me how few of those of us in our graduating class were living the life that we had planned. My friend who always said that he was going to go to Notre Dame University and become a chemical engineer, he did those two things. He went to Notre Dame University and became a chemical engineer. I think he's the only person I talked to that night, that night whose life went exactly according to his own plan. The most talented musician and actor in our class, who we all thought would have a career on stage, Broadway or someplace like that, he mows lawns at a golf course, which is honorable work, but it's not what he planned. The class sweethearts did, in fact, get married and went through a really messy divorce about five years later and were very clearly trying to stay at opposite ends of the room not what either one of them had planned. The guy voted most likely to succeed? Hadn't, at least in the way the world usually defines success. In fact, he didn't even come to the reunion because he was so embarrassed at how his life had turned out. It seemed that everyone I talked to that night with disco music blaring in the background had a life story that was a story of all kinds of detours, and I certainly did as well. I won't go into more detail on this, but let's just say that when I told my high school buddies that I had become a pastor, there was some surprise in the room. And that's, we're just going to leave that right there. Now, sometimes our detours are happy detours like the detour I'm on right now serving at Eastern Nazarene College, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes we have hopes and dreams and plans to be on one particular road or at one particular place or heading in one particular direction, but for some reason the road that we were hoping to be on is closed to us, and we find ourselves on a detour in a place of disappointment, in a place of surprise, a place of confusion. Sometimes these detours are detours in our families, you think you're done having children, and one day your wife says to you, Honey, I've got some news. Now that's a detour that often gets to a place of joy, but initially it might not be. Your mom and dad get divorced. Prodigal children. Parents with Alzheimer's. Maybe you go through a vocational detour. Your company downsizes, and you're one of the ones who is deselected. Love that word. Or you discover that the career path you've chosen for yourself is not a good fit for how God has wired you, or you don't get the job that you thought you were a lock for. Relational detours. I still remember the time when the girl that I was dating many, many years ago, obviously, I don't, I don't date anymore in case we're wondering, curious about that, but girl I was dating in college called me up and said, Jack, I've been praying about our relationship, 
And some of you can finish the sentence now, right? I've been praying about our relationship, and I've come to believe that it's God's will that we would just be friends. Which was really funny to me, strange to me, because God had told me no such thing. And so it was sort of like being broken up with by God and a girl at the exact same time. But you've probably had some relational detours along the way, right? A romance that ends unexpectedly, a long-time friendship that turns sour, a colleague at work who betrays you, academic detours, emotional detours like anxiety or depression or eating disorder, financial detours, medical detours. I was hearing a little bit about Jeff and his wife's story. A friend of mine, on Friday, I had a conversation with a friend who called me up to tell me that he's just received a cancer diagnosis, and he told me that the five-year survival rate for this cancer he just received, he found out he just had is miserable. Detours that some kind of accident or tragedy or disappointment bring into your life. We all have these thoughts, these plans, these dreams for how life is going to turn out for us, and sometimes things go exactly to plan. But sometimes the dream collapses. Sometimes our plan crashes and burns. And we find ourselves on a detour. And I think they are among the most painful, stressful, disappointing experiences of our lives. Does this ever happen to people in the Church of the Nazarene? Or is everything always perfect for all of you? And here's what I believe is the hardest thing about these detours. Sometimes, at least in my own experience, it can be really hard to find God on the detour. Our youngest son, Michael, when he was about two years old, and his entrance into our family, by the way, is an incredible detour that um, I'll tell you about another time if I ever get invited back. But I remember when he was two, he had this little deal he did when he wanted... uh, either Wendy or me, to do something with him. He'd wave his arms like this, I mean, helicopter, just as fast as he could. And he'd say, mirror, mirror, you know, mirror, mirror. And if we hesitated at all to engage in whatever he was working on or playing with or wanted us to do, he would hold out his hand like this and say, bring you, bring you, bring you. Now he's 18 years old. When he holds out his hand like this, it's because he wants, uh, wants a $20 bill, or now actually it's usually more. But back then it was all cute and tender and special and wonderful. One of the things that a child needs more than anything else, probably the thing a child needs more than anything else, and you parents of graduating seniors, all of you parents know this, that child needs to know that mom and dad are with him or her, are interested in what's going on, care, want to be involved, will do everything possible to help provide, assist, assure of love. And so can you imagine the pain of a child who does, mir, 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 bring you, bring you, bring you, and mom and dad just don't care. They're too busy. They're preoccupied. They're not around. And that's often what the detours feel like. They feel that, again, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just us backslidden Westlands. I don't know. But it feels that God has lost our address, that God doesn't care about us, that God is no longer with us. It feels sometimes like a very forsaken place. It feels like the wilderness. 
quick straw poll. How many of you have, because I'm, I'm in foreign territory here a little bit. How many of you would say you've ever experienced a detour in your life? Okay. Harder question. How many of you would say you're on one right now? How many of you are in church this morning because you're actually trying to get somewhere else and got lost on a detour? <laughs> okay, no, no, no hands up, Jeff. No hands up. Everybody wants. Detours have a way of coming into all of our lives, don't they? Even Bible people. Our text this morning is Exodus uh, chapter 13, verses 17 to 22. And if you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn there. As you're looking for it, let me just set the stage a bit. God has just freed the children of Israel from their 430-year time of slavery in Egypt. You'll remember the story. Moses went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. At the end of all the plagues, Pharaoh finally relented. The children of Israel are now finally free and ready to begin their journey to the promised land. Now, the promised land is only about 200 miles to the northeast of Egypt where they were located, where they were, had been in slavery. So I'm not real familiar with this area, but I did a little bit of research. If they were starting here in Nashua, New Hampshire, did I say that right? If they were starting here in Nashua, the promised land 200 miles to the northeast, I think would be somewhere around Acadia National Park-ish. Somewhere in Maine. Close? Am I in the right vicinity? Okay. So it's not an easy trip. I mean, they've got to walk. But after 430 years in bondage, you know, it's, it's not a huge ordeal. It should take them a few weeks. But a funny thing happens to the children of Israel on the way to the promised land. Exodus chapter 13, beginning at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of God by cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night ever left its place in front of the people. So everything is awesome. They're finally free after generations, centuries of slavery. They're on their way to their new homeland. The new homeland is not that far away. They've got a really awesome high-tech GPS that's going to guide them all the way. It's going to show them how to get there. You know, let's get this show on the road. I imagine bands playing, confetti being released, balloons being blown up. We are on our way to the promised land. But a funny thing happens to the children of Israel on the way to the promised land. Did you catch it? God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. So when their GPS, when the pillar that's going to guide them starts moving, it starts moving in the wrong direction. They want to go northeast toward Acadia. The pillar is going southeast toward Boston. 
They do not want to go to Boston. They want to go, that is not the promised land. Acadia is the promised land. They're not even out of the driveway yet, friends, and they're already heading in the wrong direction. Things are not going to plan. And as the story unfolds, this does not turn out to be a minor detour. This is not your phone telling you, go on an alternate route, and in a mile or two, you'll be back on your path, and everything will be golden. Do you remember how long it took the children of Israel to complete this journey that should have taken them a few weeks? It took them 40 years. So you imagine on your way home after church today that you get on a detour and you don't get home until 2059. <laughs> Actually, this could happen in the city of Boston, I think. You know. But that's the Israelite story. Forty years of disappointment. Forty years of being, feeling like they're off track. 40 years of walking through wilderness country, 40 years of twists and turns and waiting, 40 years to get to Acadia National Park. And the children of Israel learn about a quality of God that is both surprising and, candidly, I find sometimes a little bit frustrating. Sometimes the path on which he leads his children is not the shortest way or the fastest way or the easiest way or the most direct way. Sometimes God is the God of the detour. Sometimes God is the God of the difficult, lonely, desert journey. Detour stories are, stories are almost everywhere in the Bible. And later in the Old Testament, David is anointed to be the king of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but I would imagine that you become anoint, you, when you're anointed to become the king of Israel, you would sort of take office the next day or the next week. Straight shot to the throne. But no. That isn't what happens for David because the current king, Saul, is not happy that David is about to take his job. And so Saul tries to kill David repeatedly. And so instead of enjoying an inaugural ball in the palace, David is running for his life in the wilderness. He's hiding in caves. He's sleeping in the desert. He even has to move to a foreign country for a time. Now, I'm a little hesitant to use this as a parallel because I don't know you all well, but you'll interpret this as a political comment. Please don't. This would be like if in 2020, the next presidential election, let's just say someone defeats President Trump and yet that person, that person gets elected in November but isn't able to take office for several months because President Trump and his people are chasing the guy all around the country or girl all around the country trying to kill him. Now, not a political statement, okay? But I think we'd all agree, regardless of our political affiliation, that would be an unfortunate situation, right? That would be a constitutional crisis. That would be a real problem. And that's David's story. Joseph has a detour in prison. Esther has a detour in a forced marriage to a guy who's essentially a juvenile delinquent. Even Jesus is not immune. Someone over here just got the juvenile delinquent comment. You know. Even Jesus is not immune. He's not out of diapers yet. And Joseph and Mary have to run for their lives on an emergency trip to Egypt. 
Jesus gets baptized, but then instead of jumping right into ministry, he first has to spend 40 days out in the wilderness being tempted and tried, tested. And we all know that his path to glory involved a rather agonizing trip to a cross. Time after time after time in the Bible, I could tell you many more stories, but we've got another service coming. We see the people of God on detours. There's a dream. There's a destination. And there's a path to it that should be pretty straight, pretty easy, pretty quick, pretty painless. But it seems that more often than not, there's some kind of roadblock. There's some kind of obstruction. There's some kind of detour. And the obvious question is why? What in the world is going on here? If the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, you know, why not do the straight line, God? Why doesn't God just clear everything out of the way and make it easy for us? Well, our text in Exodus 13, I think, hints at an answer. The direct route would have brought the Israelites into Philistine territory. It would have brought them face-to-face with a group of people who would have been very hostile to them. They'd be like a bunch of Red Sox fans walking into a sports bar next to Yankee Stadium. It would get pretty ugly pretty quick. It almost got ugly in the pastor's office earlier this morning with some conversation about this. And the children of Israel simply were not ready for the challenge. They were too new in their faith. They were too new in their experience of God. They were lacking in courage. They were lacking in strength. And so the detour, the desert road, was used by God to grow these people up to strengthen their hearts, to develop their courage, to deepen their trust, to prepare them for what was to come. The detour was to be a place for them of transformation. Now, please hear me on this, because we are in the Wesleyan tradition. I don't think the text suggests or the Bible teaches that God causes all of our detours. It's not as though God says, you know, things seem to be going pretty smoothly for Jack right now. I'm just going to shake things up a little bit. Make, I'm bored today. I'm going to make my life a little more interesting. Jack has some growing up to do. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make his life miserable for a few months and a couple years. That'll whip him into shape. That is not the heart of God. Detours come into our lives for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes they're because of our own decisions. How many of you have ever had a speeding ticket? Okay. How many of you were actually speeding when you got it? Yeah. Our decisions have real consequences, and sometimes that's what causes our detours. Jesus says we reap what we sow. Sometimes detours come into our lives because of the decisions that other people make. I've been praying about our relationship, and I think God is... (laughs) By the way, she lives in New Hampshire. It's just occurring to me right now, but uh, it's okay. okay. Not near here. (laughs) Sometimes detours come into our lives simply because we live in a fallen, broken, sin-stained world, and bad stuff happens. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, Jesus said. Sometimes we don't know why detours come into our lives. There's a lot of mystery in this life. 
We like to think that we can figure everything out. Sometimes we just can't. But here's the thing. Whatever causes the detour, whatever causes the detour, the promise of the Bible is that God will be at work on the detour. It may be in ways that we do not see. It may be in ways that we do not understand or will ever understand. But God is ready to use the detours of our lives to transform us into people of faith and hope and love, people of grace and compassion and strength and patience, people who more and more reflect the character of his son, Jesus Christ, which leads me to believe that maybe, just maybe, God is not as concerned with wherever it is we're trying to get to in life as he is with the kind of person we will turn out to be. I love the last verse of this text. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night ever left its place in front of the people. One night, uh, many, many years ago, before I was married, I was driving from my parents' home who lived north of Syracuse, New York at the time, to my aunt and uncle's home in Rochester. It was about a, Rochester, New York. It's about a two-hour drive late on a Friday night. And after I'd been driving for about an hour, um, I noticed that the engine in the car that I was driving started to sputter a little bit the headlights started flickering and dimming, and one of those red lights came on my dashboard. Do you know what those red lights are called? They're called idiot lights, right? Do you know why they're called idiot lights? Because idiots like me don't know what to do when they come on. So I started looking for a payphone. So parents, explain to your children what this is. But I'm driving along the road, lights dimming, Engine sputtering, idiot light blinking at me, and I start looking along the side of the road for a payphone so I could call back to my dad, who's pretty good with cars, and ask him for his advice about what I should do. Well, I finally uh, find one, pull off, call back to my dad. Dad, what do I do? I described the symptoms. What do I do? He was a mechanic before he was a pastor. He said, well, Jack, it's the middle of the night. You're not going to find anybody to help you. He said, Jack, you're as close to your aunt and uncles as you are here, so you might as well just keep on going. Uh, I'd suggest you just go slow, stay on main roads, turn off any unnecessary electrical devices, and, uh, and good luck. <laughs> this was not the most helpful advice I'd ever received in my life, and I was a little bit frustrated with my dad for not uh, you know, bringing a little bit more to that conversation, but what else am I going to do? Get back in the car. Turn off all the unnecessary electrical equipment. Sputter to my, toward, my, uh, toward Rochester, New York the whole time, just frustrated with my dad, frustrated with my car, frustrated with the way this journey is coming out. But about two hours later, because I did have to slow things down, I finally pulled into the safety of my aunt and uncle's driveway in Rochester. First thing I do is call back to my parents' house to let them know that I made it. They had asked me to do that. I did, and there was no answer, which was odd because it was late on a Friday night, and it's not like my parents, again, Wesley and pastor and spouse, they weren't out at a disco late on a Friday <laughs> night. They, I, I thought, well, it must be they just didn't hear the phone ring, although that struck me as odd, too, because they were waiting for my call. I uh, chatted uh, with my aunt and uncle for a few minutes, ready, getting ready to go to bed, and their phone rings, 
my aunt picks up the phone. It's my father. She, said, she hands me the phone. Dad, what? I said, Dad, what's up? He says, well, he said, now that we know that you're there, we're going to turn around and go back home. I said, turn around and go back home? Where in the world are you? He said, well, we're, we're almost to Rochester. Um, as soon as we hung up the phone with you before, Mom and I jumped in the car, and we knew the route you were taking, and we hauled it on that route as fast as we could, looking out for you on the side of the road because um, if you were in any kind of trouble, we wanted to be there for you and make sure that you could get safely on your way. Dad, I'm sorry I was such a jerk on the phone when we talked to a couple. So the whole time I was so frustrated at my car and my dad and the situation, the whole time I felt so all alone, so helpless, so lost, where was my dad? He was taking extraordinary measures. He was doing everything he possibly could to be by my side, to make sure I was cared for, to make sure that that detour would not be a place of destruction for me. This is Pentecost Sunday in the life of the church. It's when we remember, when we celebrate the fact that as we read in this text, God is a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He never leaves the side of his people. He is the God who came on Pentecost and indwells his church, indwells his people, walks by our side always. And so friends, he is the God of detours. He does some of his best work on detours. And if you're on a detour this morning, I want to assure you that God is by your side and he is going to use your detour to make you strong, to reflect the character of his son Jesus more and more. I promise you he will. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I pray for all of us here who are facing some kind of detour, and that's probably every single one of us. Help us to stay faithful to you. Help us to sense your closeness. Help us to discern what you might want to teach us and use our detours to make us into people who more and more reflect the character of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this prayer. Amen. Let's just thank Pastor Jack uh, this morning for the word of God. Thank you, Jack, for sharing that with us today. I invite you to stand with me. Um, we're going to pronounce the benediction. As you go, we have displays in our parlor of our uh, seniors and their life and their calling and what God's doing in their life. We invite you to take some time. And what I do see over there is I do see there are some snacks so go snack there. At the same time, uh, Dr. Connell will be back at the table and in the parlor to greet you and for you to get to know him better. But receive this benediction. And now, O oh Spirit of the living God, you change everything. May we go knowing that you go with us. May we go knowing that you never leave us nor forsake us. May we go with this word echoing in our hearts and minds that you, the God of our detours, is the God who makes us into the people
you desire us to be. So may we go and may we become just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Greet one another in Jesus' name. God bless you.